discover how the book of Romans is, how it fits us, how, why it's relevant to the 21st century. And one of the things it does, this book of Romans and Paul intends for it to do, is to show us the truth of who we are. Until you've seen yourself for who you are, you really can't truly know God. One of the devotional books, really the first devotional book that was placed into my hands after I surrendered into the ministry, was a little devotional book called My Utmost for His Highest by Oswald Chambers. And down through the years, that little one little devotional book has continually impacted my life. And there's something that he says there that you need to see. He says, when God wants to show you what human nature is like, separated from himself, he shows it to you in yourself. Uh, if the Spirit of God has ever given you a vision of what you are apart from the grace of God, and he will only do this when the Spirit is working in you, then you know that in reality there is no criminal half as bad as you yourself could be without his grace. That's what Paul has been doing in this book of Romans. First, he sums up, uh, gives us that terrible picture of the truth about human nature in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18, where he goes through the long list. He says, all have turned aside. They have no understanding. They don't seek for God. There is none good, no, not one. And he comes to the climax in verse 23 of Romans chapter 3. He says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's all of us. That's me. That's you. That's all of us. That's the picture of humanity apart from God so that there's nothing we can do so that all of our combined efforts to do anything about our sinful condition have never done anything to help and will never do anything to help. So there's no good news that Paul has to offer man in his own spiritual state. The only good news can come from God. And Paul begins introducing that in the very first chapter of Romans when he said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, and the gospel is good news. He said, It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. So last week, I introduced you to a legal term that Paul uses that we need to talk a little bit about this morning. It is the word justified. The word justified, and it means made right with God, or a better understanding of it would be declared right with God. So this morning, our main text really is going to be Romans 3.28, but we'll also go into chapter 4 to discover what Romans 3.28 really means, as Paul points it out. So here's the verse, Romans 3, verse 28, where Paul said, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Now that's really radical, especially when Paul has been talking mostly for the last little bit to Jews who've spent most of their lives trying to keep the law. And Paul said, for we hold or we contend that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. 
So the question that we're going to ask today is, how can I be right with God? That's the question that you need to answer in your own life. It's the question that I need to answer. And that's the, Paul, the question that Paul is answering. He's nailed the last nail in the lid of the coffin of human hope, saying there's none good, no, not one. You're absolutely hopeless. You're absolutely helpless. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The judgment of God is coming. The wrath of God is coming. And there is no escape from that judgment. So what is it that you can do? What hope then do you have? And it is that hope that Paul is going to outline this morning. It's the same hope that Abraham had. It is the hope that you and I have. So first, let's ask another question. Can I be made right with God by keeping the law? And well, Paul seems to say no in uh, Romans 3:28. And so what is the law of God? How do we understand the law of God? Well, the law of God, we could take the whole Old Testament or the whole law. Jesus said you can summarize the law in in two sentences, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. That's the first and greatest commandment, and the second's likened to it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But basically, we've got those ten commandments. And so what does it say about me when one of those commandments tells me that I shouldn't lie, and I do lie? What does the law tell me about myself? What does the law say about me when it says I ought to obey my parents, but I'm not obeying my parents and I'm not honoring my parents as I should? What does the law say about me then? What does the law say about me when it says I shouldn't covet anything that belongs to my neighbor, but I find in my own heart and life that I covet everything that belongs to my neighbor? Well, what the law does essentially, it tells me that I'm not keeping it. It tells me that I can't keep it, and it tells me that I will never keep it. And so Paul says that was the purpose of the law from the very beginning, was not to so much give me a standard that I should live by as to show me my own crookedness and my own failure, how incredibly sinful I am. That's what Paul said in Romans 3.20. We look quickly at that verse. He said, by, for by the works of the law... No human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. We said last week that the straight edge of God's law, when it's dropped down beside my life, shows me how crooked I am. All you have to do is hold your life upside the Ten Commandments and then you see that you are centrally sinful and broken at the core and you can never be the person that, that can live by that standard because you don't. Every day you fail and every day you fall and the truth of Paul is, is pronounced over your life that I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's no problem with the law. It's, the, my, it's my problem. I am the one that's a failure. So uh, one illustration of the matter might come from about how God is going to uh, of Romans 3.28 when Paul says we contend that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. One good illustration of that might be the thief on the cross. And we think of the thief on the cross. You remember there were three crosses. Jesus was in the center. One thief was casting insults at Jesus. One also was casting insults at Jesus. But one of them had a change of heart somewhere along the way. And before it was over, he said, the one thief did, said, remember me 
when you come into your kingdom. Now, as we talk about him, this thief, was he a sinner? Yes, he was. Was he guilty? Yes, he was. Was he ever, for one minute before he died, an innocent man? No, not even for a second. How then did Jesus promise him a home in heaven? How was it that he died right with God? Well, he was declared right with God, not by his works or on the basis of a baptism that he never had because he had nothing to offer God. So what was it that caused him to be declared right with God and a candidate for heaven? Well, there on that cross, in the last minute of his life, he put his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. All he could do was trust in Jesus. In that moment, he was declared right with God. Not innocent, mind you, but forgiven on the basis of Jesus' death on the cross. So much so that Jesus could say, This day you will be with me in paradise. That is all you can do. You say, well, the thief on the cross had just that last little bit of time. Well, if he'd have had another million years, he couldn't have ever set right his, uh, his record with God by doing good works. And with another million years of good works, you will be no more righteous than the thief on the cross. Your only hope is to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the only way that you can be declared right with God. So the law, by the works of the law, Paul said, no one, nobody will ever be declared right with God because the law just simply proves you're a sinner in your own life, the practical everyday way that you live your life, the thoughts you think, the actions or the inactions uh, show you that you're a sinner. Second, the law shows me my need for a Savior. Now, when we, when we look at the, the, the verse and it says, by the works of the law will no flesh be justified, it doesn't mean that the law is not important. It's given as a standard whereby I could measure myself. And it would show me that I'm not righteous. It would show me the truth of human nature, that there is none righteous, no, not one. And it would show me over and over and prove to me that what I need, that what you need, that what all of us need is a Savior. It would point us to our need for Jesus. Now, I want to explain this the best way I can. My mind works really simply sometimes, so let me explain it where maybe the children can understand it and then the rest of us who are adults can understand it. On the screen is hopefully going to be a picture of a seesaw. You know what a seesaw is, and you've maybe ridden on a seesaw before, and a seesaw is basically a simple machine. It's a it's a lever, and, and the, that little middle part is called the fulcrum. Well, a seesaw sits down on one end because it's heavier on one end than it is on the other. And if you put weight on one end of the seesaw, let's just say you put yourself and your spiritual self on one end of that seesaw, and, and it's sitting down. And let's say it's sitting down, and it's sinking down toward judgment. You're sinking, sinking toward judgment, sinking toward hell on your end of the seesaw. And so you think to yourself, well, maybe, just maybe, I can, by some effort of mine, carry some weight down to the other end of the seesaw to lift myself up. So I take my, my goodness, all the goodness that I have, and I try to be really good. I try to obey my parents. I try not to steal. I try not to lie. 
I, I want to do everything that, that I'm supposed to do. I give money to my church. I, I clean my neighbor's yard. I, I do lots of good works. And so I'm trying to add those up over time so that if I add enough over time, it will lift me from damnation and judgment and hell, and, and I will be free of that. Well, what Paul is simply telling us is that you can do that from now till eternity, and you won't move. You're into the seesaw. It is still sinking downward toward judgment. You're doomed. You're moving toward damnation and hell, and there's nothing you can do. Your only hope is if somehow Jesus is on the other end of your seesaw. Jesus' goodness and his righteousness. What can wash away my sin? What can atone for my sin? Not of works that I have done, only nothing but the blood of Jesus. And when Jesus is on the other end, then he alone can lift me up. He alone can deliver me from judgment. There is no other escape. There is no other deliverance other than the one that Jesus brings to me. As long as I'm trying to take the weight of my goodness down to the other end of the seesaw, nothing will ever change. I'll still be headed toward judgment. Now, Paul was a preacher too, and he wanted also an illustration to give. He didn't use the illustration of the thief on the cross, although I think he could have. He didn't talk about a seesaw. Uh, that's not, he, he used legal terms and bookkeeping terms, but I understand a seesaw better than I do bookkeeping. We're going to talk a little bit about bookkeeping in a minute. But one illustration that he did give that every good Jew would know was the illustration of Abraham. And so he uses that illustration in chapter 4. Remember, he said in verse 28, For we contend that a man is justified by faith and not by the works of the law. That was a pretty significant contradiction to the Jewish mind. So he had to prove this to them. And so he does that by taking them to the number one Jew in all of history, and that would be Abraham, and we're going to talk about him in chapter 4. Uh, and so look at chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. He said, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? Hmm. You think Abraham knew anything about justification by faith? Wouldn't Abraham have been made right with God by when God said, leave Ur of the Chaldees? He went out going somewhere where he didn't know he was going. Didn't, wasn't it his works? Wasn't it all the things he did that made Abraham? Wasn't it his circumcision, the fact that when God said, be circumcised, and he was? Wasn't that what made Abraham right with God? We're going to find that out. But, so first, he tells them about Abraham's great discovery. Abraham's great discovery. And by the way, in verse 1 here, this word discovered or discovery or has found, whatever you have in your Bible, it is the Greek word from which we get our English word eureka. Eureka. This was Abraham's eureka moment in Scripture. And this is your eureka moment if you've never seen it. This is where you're going to discover something wonderful. Remember, everything so far we've seen in Romans has been bad news. I've got no hope. I'm helpless. I'm hopeless. I'm hopelessly sinful. I'm broken. I, the, the, the whole society, the whole world is headed toward judgment in a great death spiral, this great death spiral of the soul. There's no hope for us and no help for us. But what did Abraham discover way back in the Old Testament? 
It's a discovery that we're going to make this morning. So, chapter 4, verse 3. He turns to the scripture. He says, well, we always need to look at the Bible to prove what we're saying. He said, what does scripture say? It says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. Simply put, Abraham believed God. He trusted God. He took God at his word. He depended on God and not on his own goodness. And he discovered that God accepted his faith in what he believed. He believed God and God accepted his faith. Now, here's the next thing we need to understand. What in the world was it that Abraham believed? Because if I'm going to be justified by my faith, then I've got to believe essentially the same thing Abraham believed, right? Or at least Abraham's got to believe the same thing I believe. What was it he believed? Well, it was something really rather radical. He believed in God's goodness. He believed in God's faithfulness. But what was really important is that Abraham believed in God's promise. And amazingly, Paul tells us that Abraham believed the gospel. Now, how is that way back in the Old Testament? that Abraham believed the gospel? Well, we're going to find out. Galatians chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Galatians 3, 8 and 9. Now the scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and foretold the good news, that's the gospel, foretold the good news to Abraham, saying... All the nations will be blessed in you. So those who have faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. Now we have to say, what, what part of the gospel was announced beforehand to Abraham? Well, this part, that all the nations will be blessed in you. Now according to Paul in Galatians 3.16, look at this verse. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, but he does not say, and to seeds, as though referring to many, but and to your seed, referring to one who is Christ. In other words, to Abraham, it was revealed that through one singular descendant of his, all the nations would be blessed. Say, so what did Abraham know about anything like that? Well, let me tell you, this wasn't new to Abraham. Since Adam, people started looking for the fulfillment of this promise. That same promise was made to Adam and Eve after they sinned in the garden because God said to Satan or to the serpent, he said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. In other words, since the time of Adam and Eve, people were looking for a promised deliverer, someone who would correct the circumstances. Adam and Eve sinned, and they were broken immediately. Their whole world was broken by sin. 
Their family was broken by sin. Their society was broken by sin. They saw the death spiral when it started. And did they look forward to the deliverer? Well, let me tell you how they did. Do you know what they named their first child? They named him Cain. You know that story. Do you know what his name means? He is the one. What do you think they were looking for? What do you think they were hoping for? They were hoping that he would be the one, but he wasn't the one. We know that story. Nor was Abel the one, nor was Seth the one. But people looked for the deliverer. They all through that time looked for the... And so when God made this promise to Abraham, Abraham said, yes, I'm going to put my hope in the promise of God. I'm going to put my hope in this deliverer that God has promised. How do we know that's true? Can we be sure it's true? Can we be confident that that's what Abraham really believed? Well, don't take my word for it. Take the word of the Lord Jesus himself in John chapter 8, verse 56. This is what Jesus said. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. When Abraham looked forward and placed his faith in God's promise, trusting in God and not in his own efforts or in his own goodness, God accepted Abraham's faith and Abraham was lifted from doom, damnation, and judgment. He was declared right with God by faith and in response to his faith, God made the books balance. He credited it to him as righteousness. Now, I know these are bookkeeping terms, justified and credited, accounted, all of these things, but I understand seesaws a little better than I understand accounting, so I chose to use that illustration. But I just want, to, want you to see that it was not Abraham's goodness, it was someone else's goodness that was credited to Abraham. But suppose, let's just suppose, that for me personally, let's suppose that what I'm depending on to get me to heaven, me, not talking about you, me. So I, I say, I'm going to depend on my goodness I'm going to dress up every day and act like I'm good and look like I'm good. I'm going to pray every night that God would help me to be a good man, and I'm going to try to depend on my goodness. And on top of my goodness, I'm going to add my church attendance. I'm in church most all the time. And so I'm going to add my church attendance to that. And then I'm going to add my contribution record. And then I've got a big stack of sermons in my office, and I'm going to stack up all of those sermons and all of that Bible study and all of my efforts for God. Will any of that help me? Will that lift the other end of the seesaw out of judgment, out of damnation, away from hell? No, it won't. The bottom line will always read that I'm guilty. And what I need is the righteousness that belongs to somebody else, the goodness, the love, the mercy, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Only by trusting in him and his death for me on the cross will it ever change the bottom line for me or for you. And the last question that Abraham had to prove to these folks who have got their minds rolling and they said, you know, sometimes we get in these little cyclical arguments. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Lily Kate, you can tell me after church which one of those came first. And so they said, which came first, faith or circumcision? 
Because, you know, he's a Jew, you know, and it's because he's a Jew that he's going to go to heaven. It's because he's the first Jew, and the Jews are going to heaven because they are Jews, because they're circumcised. They've got this mark that marks them as belonging to God. Now, remember, he's been talking about that also. He said circumcision is not an outward mark. It's a mark on your heart worked by the Spirit, not by the letter. If you don't have that work of the Spirit in your heart, you aren't going to heaven. Not only so, if you're trying to depend on that, and put that on the other end of the seesaw, that's not going to get you anywhere either, any more than your church membership or your baptism or taking the, the, the doing 400 Hail Marys. It's not going to help you. It's doing nothing for you. The only thing that will help you is faith in Christ. Verse 9 of chapter 4, you're only going to see verse 10 on the screen as we answer, when did Abraham believe? Now, is this blessing only for the Jews, or is it also for uncircumcised Gentiles? Well, what we've been saying, that we have been saying that Abraham was counted as righteous by God because of his faith. But how did this happen? Was he counted as righteous only after he was circumcised, or was it before he was circumcised? Clearly, God accepted Abraham before he was circumcised. Circumcision was a sign that Abraham already had faith and that God had already accepted him and declared him to be righteous even before he was circumcised. So Abraham is the spiritual father of those who have faith and have not been circumcised. They are counted as righteous because of their faith. And Abraham is also the spiritual father of those who have been circumcised, but only if they have the same kind of faith Abraham had before he was circumcised. That may all be meaningless to you, but it simply means this. There's nothing outward that you can give to God that's going to count. No work of yours is going to matter. What matters is that you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, obviously that issues in some change in your life. And if it doesn't, then you really didn't put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because that is a transformational moment. Faith becomes the channel through which the transaction is made. Faith opens the connection between my heart and God's heart. Faith is not a deposit that I make. Faith is opening up the books to God and letting God see the books and say, Yes, God, I'm a sinner. Yes, God, I can never make this work. Yes, God, I can never correct this by anything that I do. Yes, God, the only way this can ever be corrected, the only way my books will ever balance, the only way I'll ever get to heaven is through what Jesus Christ has done for me on the cross. I understand I have nothing to offer you. Would you please help me? And I'm telling you, if you'll do that one thing, God will forever change your bottom line. And no matter what you've done in the past, it will never, ever be charged to your account. In the books of heaven, your sin will be transferred to Christ's account and his righteousness transferred to your account. And the books will finally balance 